0: Welcome to the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD.
1: Nothing particularly significant or important. It wasn't Uh, terribly dramatic. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs therapy.
0: Lie down on the couch. That's crazy. When we've got effective interventions at our disposal. What does that mean? sizes, empirical questions answered left and right. A lot of us, like became illegal.
1: A lot of us, like became illegal.
0: Transcranial magnetic stimulation. Life. Psychosis is rubbish. That boy for, all for all of us. Welcome to the show, the Friday psychiatrist. psychiatrist. Let's go. That boy needs therapy. That boy needs Look, therapy.
1: All that's going on here is that these people do not have a language for talking about their thoughts and their feelings. And as soon as they start talking about their thoughts and their feelings, they don't have to do crazy things. They don't have to do crazy things. 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 I'm Jeremy Fox. I'm a licensed professional counselor who helps patients with trauma. It's good to see you again, Jeremy. Great to see you. Should we do just an intro of us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Owen Muir. Uh, I'm a child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Uh, that's an MD after the name, Dr. Muir, to my mom, who I see tonight, actually. She's very proud. EMDR, just describe what it is and start with that.
1: EMDR, for everyone out there who, who doesn't know that acronym, Eye Movement Desensitization Reprocessing, it... Is a methodology for desensitization. It's an exposure therapy that was discovered really in 87 by Francine Shapiro. She was taking a walk in a park in California, and she noticed that her eyes started spontaneously darting among some trees, and she was thinking of something negative. She noticed that she felt subjectively better after that experience. She began to study this effect, PhD program. Because this was the late '80s, she started exploring this idea of applying bilateral left to right, repeated left to right eye movements to traumatic mental mental imagery. First, she was directing people to just notice that imagery, just whatever was coming to mind that was most upsetting. So the sights, the sounds, the smells of a flashback, whatever. And she would keep directing people back to that. During MDR, she let the person just notice where the thoughts went. There was a reprocessing effect of recognizing the the person's schema of the event sometimes other memories would change someone may notice other associations to whatever that traumatic memory was and they have a different view of it the emotions are reduced and it's not good that it happened but we want people to no longer have the emotional arousal that tensing effect in other words there's a few mechanisms we think how it works for one the working memory hypothesis is what it's called and very simply I explain to clients the same way if you have a lot of tabs open on your computer that are demanding a lot of energy and you're trying to watch a YouTube video, the video is going to go slower because it doesn't have as much RAM, as much memory, as much ability to play because there's so much background stuff going on. Very similarly with our brains, because we're not as great at multitasking as we think, you give the mind a task and you demand it do something else, you're going to pull both those things and do them poorer, right? We use that in a good way with EMDR reprocessing, where you keep the person in the present with that eye movement and we have them think of the traumatic episode or memory or fear of the future. So they're thinking on one hand of something upsetting, and on the other, they're in the present and it pulls their attention, their working memory, how much they can have in mind at one time, and it reduces that emotion. Their brain kind of snaps to the present. Wait a minute, this is in the past. I'm in the present now. And you're grinding up the quality of that memory by introducing the present into it. When you say trauma, what do you mean? So I will lean on Peter Levine and Bessel van der Kolk for that. Really, a memory that's stored with the sensations associated has a timeless quality. So when you're reminded of it, it feels like you're there.
0: And- So this is, that's a definition of trauma and essentially
1: what what I'll call
0: capital T trauma for people who've experienced it. It's an event in the world and the biology that can lead you to be more susceptible to this is different for folks, but it's a big, terrifying thing. Humans are optimized to identify big, terrifying things and avoid the hell out of them, which doesn't mean that's the only thing that's traumatizing. I think there are a lot of, things where people spend time invalidating themselves or being invalidated by others because a fundamental truth is that our experience of distress or joy or whatever for any experience is not the same as somebody else's there are plenty of things that are traumatizing that are not capital T traumas and there are some capital T traumas that frankly aren't that traumatizing but they do have the physiological impact and impairments associated because they intrude on your life.
1: People's resilience differs from person to person. It's a variable thing. I know Bessel and many other great traumatologists from different fields have really pushed for there to be that complex PTSD or developmental PTSD diagnosis that would encompass a lot of the kinds of lowercase t traumas just that add up and accrue. Because I like what I often think is there's these giant capital T traumas. And if they happen to someone who had a pretty stable childhood, good friendships, solid identity, they bounce back from that often pretty well. But if someone grows up feeling unwanted, if they grow up with really just consistent neglect, maybe that's not life-threatening, but that certainly forms your identity and that's traumatizing 100%.
0: Might it be that the capital T traumas that create re-experiencing like it was there, right? That's one system. And the chronic mistrust that teaches us based on maybe not re-experiencing level events, but bad, like being stalked is, ba- is awful. I've been stalked for years and a lot of it's online. No one's going to jump out from behind a car, though actually that has happened too. But that wasn't the bad part. Like I had a New York Post reporter jump out from behind a car to take a picture of me. And that was jarring. But I don't have flashbacks to that. I do worry about bad things happening to me because bad things have happened to me because somebody wanted bad things to happen to me. And that happens to a lot of people, right? I worry about my patients because I'm a psychiatrist and I have have patients who I'm afraid could could die, Uh, any physician. We'll, we'll have that experience. We'll get that bad. It is traumatizing to be a physician. Not all of us have flashbacks about the deaths of our patients. The level of trauma in just being a doctor, like we, we don't call it that, but people die all the time, no matter what kind of doctor you are. We all go through training where there's an emergency room, there's a surgery, there's an ICU, there's a code. We're going to watch people die and it's going to be... Capital T traumatizing, and yet not all of us have re experiencing of that. However, it may be that the things that cause real burnout and impairment for those individuals, and we call it burnout, I think is a dodge. PTSD is a good brand. Yeah, it is. Yes. Eugene Lipoff disagrees with that. He thinks it would be post traumatic stress injury, which may be a better brand. I think that the
1: intersection point is capacity for bouncing back. If someone who grows up with a sense of validation and what we would call the good enough parent, right? In attachment research, a child who feels overall wanted and safe is going to develop a greater window of tolerance for bigger traumas, bigger traumatic events. If you grow up with just a sense of neglect and lack of safety. And so I'll summon the great Example that all good trauma therapists know by heart, the ACEs study that Kaiser Permanente did, adverse childhood experience study, and we got a scale from it.
0: Which I get on every patient, by the way.
1: Yeah, which is brilliant of you. When you grow up and there's just a a rampant sense of either neglect, unwantedness, what have you, then you're going to have way less stability in the face of those giant traumatic events. For
0: people who grow up like that, Mm -hmm. they're not wrong. That was their experience. No, not at all. It would be maladaptive to trust the world when you grow up with so much unpredictability. I think there is an invalidation of how adaptive it was in their in early environment question mark.
1: I I love this. So you're saying that the those people grew up with exactly the level of alertness that they needed. Yeah. That's actually a new wave of thought, defense mechanisms and and patterns of behavior or stress responses and made sense then. That was how people had to live. It's like, you wouldn't tell someone in the throes of war that they needed to just open up more and take time to smell the roses. That would really tone deaf. It's
0: World War I. There are a million right. shells in the Battle of Somme. It just takes time, time for you.
1: It's a new time. Let's do some <laughs> self-care. Let's do some self-care. Th- that absolutely would not work. Helping kids who still live in those kind of environments. Kids who have been through the foster care system, people who are under 18 and even over 18 who are just trying to figure out where to go next and live. People who are in environments where there's consistent dismissal and poor treatment, like they've adapted how they had to. The goal is to get out of that. When kids tell me it was
0: bad, I believe when adults tell me their experience was not good. I believe that to be the case. They're making predictions about the future that based on their
1: experience are accurate. Yes, I'll say there's that dialectic of being able to recognize all foster care is not terrible and there are some horrible experiences in kids that fall through the cracks that aren't treated the same. So not trusting when anyone you've ever met was untrustworthy is learning and development. You've learned to recognize the pattern. As therapists, we want to help people to go into new environments and respond in new ways. There's an
0: FDA-cleared treatment called the PRISM system by Gray Matters Health that uses neurofeedback. Gray Matters use functional connectivity mapping to train a neurofeedback algorithm. And so you're watching a video game of a guy in a waiting room, and you're making him sit down, and that's down-regulating your amygdala. So overarching hypothesis is that all trauma treatment is neuromodulation. Oh, it is. And the exposure that you're doing, essentially, mm-hmm. with EMDR is a combination of neuromodulation from physical movement, which moves the brain, right?
1: Yep. Absolutely. Moving the
0: eyes creates brain circuit changes. So you're learning to be unafraid.
1: Yes. Bingo. My feelings are it's really an answer to prayer. For people who are unresponsive to different treatments, It's this is going to allow a lot of validation that what's going on is a brain problem. David Carrion is a man of faith
0: and I'm an agnostic about my atheism.
1: Yeah. But
0: what people want and what people wanted for millennia is to be delivered.
1: Yes. Great word. Yes.
0: They don't so want a I... 50% reduction in symptoms.
1: No, they don't. They want.
0: <laughs> and religion had owned that word for a long time because in the Bronze Age, atheism wasn't even an option. Like how angry were the gods at you was mm-hmm. the only relevant <laughs> question. Yeah. People want to be delivered. They want to feel less suffering. They want to be well. And so I, I you're backing off a little bit on the answer to prayers. The prayers that people give, whether they have faith or not, people are, are praying to whatever to not
1: suffer. No, I, I absolutely think this could be something for, for religious or non-religious people, I understand. Like it's it looks like magic almost, right? Like a sufficiently advanced technology for that. I love that. We're looking at that intersection of the mind and the brain. This is the big thing. I've been really excited to hear from you, leaving behind check boxes and taking a more trans-diagnostic, beyond diagnostic approach instead of looking at checklists on literal paper or on the computer, looking at brain regions and seeing how they interact. What is the unique? picture of each client and so this excites me because of that it's literally saying look here's what's going on with this person here's why they're experiencing these symptoms here's what you need to modulate versus
0: a lot of guesswork problem part of the problem is therapists don't do medical school the experience of being in an operating room and having to hold pressure on or somebody dies yeah you don't have to learn how to sew up the person or be a surgeon to get something out of the experience of keeping someone alive in the moment because
1: you're holding pressure on and they're not bleeding out. Love this conversation. As a therapist, I can say, I think all training is created equally. We've got a massive shortage of therapists. We've got a massive shortage of, I feel like, training to deal with the epidemic of mental illness we're dealing with. I understand grad schools really want to get more people there. And I think there doesn't have to be full med training involved I, i'm gonna i'm gonna training. push back
0: I'm gonna, pu- I'm gonna push back a little bit on it because the thing it. that was meaningful to me at least in retrospect wasn't any of that i did learn stuff in the classes i did learn stuff in didactics but what gotcha. i ended up learning the most from was my patients
1: oh absolutely
0: i, I remember the first time i swore because i read an article about swearing and its utility in medical school I had a patient who I really wasn't feeling like I was connecting with. And so I I took a, he came in and he had, you know, an abscess from IV drug use. And it was just another time in the hospital. I took a risk and I said, sounds like you're sick of this shit. And he was like, oh my God, it's so, that's it. I am sick of coming in here for this shit. And everything I did in his care was a rounding error compared to acknowledging his experience. Mm. And, and so I think part of the problem with being a therapist or being trained to be a therapist, it's less likely that you are going to have the same horrible traumatizing experiences that you're trying to help people with, which doesn't mean you have to be helpful, but does mean that you lack some context. And the people who can teach you about their suffering are the people who are doing the suffering. And yeah. so I would almost pray for more unstructured time where we just have to sit in someone's world and experience and have a conversation without trying to overthink it. What's it like? And the whole job is just to understand where someone's coming from mm-hmm. as opposed to try to do something fancy. Yeah. And and so getting back to EMDR. Yes. Does it make sense to you? And you tell me, because I don't know. But like EMDR sounds crazy. It just from jump. Oh, you move your eyes and that does a thing. Like the, ah. And it sounds crazy until you have, at least for me, like I, for years, I was like, yeah, I couldn't be real. Yeah, I know the data says it works, but I can't see how it could work. And my skepticism and the data don't have to line up. Hmm? EMDR, somebody noticed something in their own life. The person who did a moment of noticing took that noticing into the lab and tried to figure out why what they noticed might be a thing. An empiricist noticed something and came up with a system for evaluating whether what they noticed was something that could heal. Yes. Which isn't what we think of when we think of therapy unless we rewind and go, the original therapy stuff was an empiricist, Freud, Mm-hmm. Young, etc., noticing something and trying to systematize it. We have all been doing this. We do this in our own lives. We notice something. If we're empiricists and want to understand why, we come mm-hmm. up with a way of evaluating what we noticed.
1: One hundred percent. That needs to be taught, really, in in graduate school to an extent like that ability to really think like a scientist, right? That's what we're doing in any sort of programmatized, programmatic, structured therapy like that. Bilateral eye movement activating the brain's forward motion response, because when your eyes are moving back and forth, you usually are moving forward. And so that's a hypothesis now that activates the same neural network and patterns that would occur if you're moving forward towards a challenge. So instead of fight, flight, free, it's forward motion.
0: Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like the mammalian dive reflex. You don't have to get why it works. You just have to understand that it does. Somebody noticed something.
1: A hundred percent.
0: And figured out how to make it a thing that worked. And it's Uh up to the other empiricist to figure out why. Yes. Essentially, noticing plus systematizing. Yes.
1: What if Francine Shapiro had just gotten a a match on Tinder and was distracted and thought we'd be in a totally different world right now. So I think there's bilateral Tinder matches. There you go. Left and right swiping. And I I don't want that to intimidate people, but I do think it needs to inspire a sense of reverence and the right kind of attitude towards your interventions that you are crafting things and implementing them that, that you then want to check in on next session, the next session. So what does that entail? a sense of recognizing the moment to moment and noticing. And so carrying that in your life beyond.
0: What you're saying, essentially, as an applied scientist, taking a a science frame, and when I say science, maybe you're wrong. There's change that's going to happen, and I'm going to have to accept that it may or may not be the case that I did it. (laughs) But everything you do in therapy is in therapy, in the moment of doing kind of traditional in-the-office therapy, none of that is what matters. It's what happens in the client's life after that, which is most of their life, not the time they're spending with you. That's important. You're an applied scientist who never gets to see in real time, or rarely, the outcomes of your interventions. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Owen Scott Muir, MD, and this is the Frontier Psychiatrist Podcast the companion publication to the Frontier Psychiatrist.substack.com. Subscribe and rate this as five stars because it helps discovery on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you happen to be listening. Have a great one.